Hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quivell, known to my friends as Marv, and this time I am talking with Martin Jean from the podcast Filmbug. How are you, Martin? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on your show all the way from Los Angeles, California. And thank you from the middle of England. (laughs) How were you first introduced to podcasting? Uh, You know, I'm a big fan of uh, NPR. And so NPR had a lot of shows that I really enjoyed, like Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Um, and uh, in particular, Glenn Washington has a show that I really, really enjoyed. And at some point, NPR uh, went from being a traditional radio show to, you know, different podcasts under the NPR umbrella. And so I followed them uh, onto their podcasting platforms and um, I really enjoyed the the formats. I, I enjoyed, uh, you know, just radio in general. Um, I will say that my love for radio started when I was a child. I was born and raised in Haiti. And as I was growing up, there was always, every Sunday, the entire family would huddle around a, a small little radio and we would listen to one particular program. Um, it, it was by a storyteller named Maurice Sixto. And Maurice would just tell stories and it would be an hour long. He would tell stories about rural life in Haiti, about you know corruption and Haitian politics, about poverty and class uh, warfare and all this stuff. But it was so intriguing and so fascinating that I, as a child, I could I could visualize what he was saying because it was the storytelling was so vivid. Um, so I grew up with a love of radio and with a love of that kind of storytelling. Um, so we, NPR was just really me as an adult continuing that love uh, of, of storytelling. And then at some point, you know, as I dabbled into the different podcasts that NPR had, I, I had a friend who reached out to me. And um, she said, hey, would you like to do a podcast? I said I would, but uh, I don't want to deal with the technical part of it. (laughs) And she she said, fine, no problem. I'll handle the tech part. You can do, you know, the co-hosting and the co-producing part of it. And so we, at that time, we started a podcast called Fum on Films, which is basically, and Creole Fum means women. So it's two women discussing films. And we talked about Haitian movies. We talked about Haitian creatives. And we started that podcast about three years ago, three and a half years ago, I want to say. And we still have it. We're just on hiatus right now. But that was my initial introduction into being a podcaster. And then from there, I decided to branch out and create my own podcast, which is Filmbook. Okay, so you're from Haiti, which is the same country as Rachel Benjamin, who you did the episode on about the missing piece. Yes, absolutely. That is correct. They say, do my homework. <laughs> Good for you. I love it. I think that's fantastic. Yes, Rachel and I are, are both from Haiti. Um, and I met her actually quite by accident. I, I happened to be in Florida at the time on vacation during Christmas break. 
And I, we have a mutual friend who called me and said, hey, I'm doing a table read for a screenplay for this new uh, uh, filmmaker. Her name is Rachel Benjamin. Would you like to come to, to the table read? I said, sure. So I traveled. I, I was in Fort Lauderdale at the time. I went from Fort Lauderdale to Miami. I joined them. And, um, you know, they needed one more person to read. I said, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> so I ended up being part of the table read. And uh, that's how I met Rachel Benjamin. And we stayed friends, even though she lives in Florida. She comes to L.A. once in a while. And I go to Florida quite often. You know, we meet up for drinks or coffee or what have you. And we keep up with each other in terms of what projects we're working on and, and what we have coming up next. But, yeah, we are, we're, both, we're, we're both from Haiti, but we met in, in the States. Okay, before I ask about your filmmaking history, did the show that you're doing now, Filmbug, was that a natural follow-on from the podcast you were doing with your friend that you mentioned? Um, it, I don't know if it was natural follow-on. It, it, I mean, it, they're both obviously about filmmaking, but Film on Films specifically focuses on Haiti and Haitian filmmakers. With Filmbug, I wanted to talk to all kinds of different filmmakers from from different walks of life. And I wanted to know how they went about making their films. And, and it, it, it turns out that, you know, the focus seems to be on their first films. And the reason being is because the focus on a film bug is on movies that are made for little to no money or TV shows that are made for little to no money. And so for most people, that happens to be their very first project, because once they get on and start doing second or third projects, they're able to raise a little bit more money to make those films or those TV shows. Um, so, so that's the connection is that both podcasts are about movies. Um, but again, one specifically centers Haiti and Haitian filmmakers and the other one uh, does not. So how were you introduced to filmmaking then? Because in that episode, you mentioned that um, it was very difficult for Rachel to get into filmmaking. Was it the same for yourself? It was, no, I would say. <laughs> the the, the <laughs> honest answer is no. I, I so I, I mentioned Molly Sixto, who was a storyteller, but I've always been, I've always had an interest in the arts, you know, the, 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 Oral storytelling obviously was one of them. Theater was another one. So when I was growing up, I did a lot of theater. I was part of a, a theater group in Haiti uh, in my school, and we would put on uh, plays at the Haitian National Theater. We had plays at our uh, own school. I went to an all-girls Catholic school ran by European nuns in the middle of Haiti. So we would put on these plays um, every uh, every other month, we would have a play that we would we would put on, and then I immigrated to the United States after high school and started college. But even then, at a community college, I was also doing plays. I, I continued that passion. It was a little bit more difficult because now I was doing play, plays in English as opposed to plays in Haitian Creole or in yes. French which I was doing before. So that part was a little bit difficult, but I, a little challenging, but I enjoy it. I enjoyed it nonetheless. And then I moved to Columbus, Ohio. And while I was there, I went, I was in college and my, my family being a very, very strict and very conservative Haitian family to them, the only professional paths for me were either law 
medicine or engineering that, you know, that's typical Haitian families, uh, immigrants in particular. It's like, those are the three options that you have. And so I went to law school in Ohio and I practiced law in Ohio. All the while I was still doing plays. I was, uh, uh, I remember one play in particular that I did was for colored girls. We put that on a couple of nights uh, in a couple of weekends a month um, in Columbus, Ohio, there were some reviews in the local papers and it was, it was community theater. It was a lot of fun. I met a lot of fantastic women who were doing just fantastic things in Columbus, Ohio. And then I started doing some, uh, you know, local commercials in Ohio and, uh, and what they call industrials, which is, uh, you know, doing a, a bit that is reserved to, that, that is to be used internally by a company whether it's a bit on sexual harassment or a bit about one of their particular products, that kind of stuff. So those are what, that's, that's an industrial. And I did some of those in Columbus, Ohio as well. And then at some point I decided that, you know, I really was over the weather in Ohio because it's quite cold. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, and, and I really wanted to pursue a little bit more uh, the entertainment side of me. So I packed up and I moved to, to Los Angeles, California. And when I moved initially, I was still doing legal consulting work because it's not an industry where you just move and you start working in it. Um, it, it it's not that easy. And but I to acting and I was, you know, starring in short films and connecting with uh, other filmmakers and other actors. And then one day I happened to, you know, walk into a, a restaurant that was having its grand opening um, at the time, I was doing a little Haitian radio show, and then you know th- there was an invitation sent to the radio station. So I went on behalf of the radio station, and I met the owner of the restaurant, who happened to be a film director, producer, and uh, you know we were talking, and I was telling him that I'm an actress, but that I also have some interest on how it works behind the scenes. And he said, "Would you like to learn?" I said, "Sure." <laughs> and so. Um, I started producing. Uh, it was that that's how it happened. Um, and I started producing very low budget uh, faith based films at the time. Turnaround was very quick, was very challenging uh, because when there is no money, you need at least to have a lot of time to put things together. And we didn't have a lot of time either. So that's that's basically that that was my entry into filmmaking. So with the sort of films that you're making, then it's probably best that you have everything ready in the, so that you know in pre-production, as they call it, what you're going to do. You help, you already have a set agenda of things that are going to happen. So uh, to quote um, Alfred Hitchcock, you've already made the film before you even started filming it. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you definitely have to have a very tight pre-production um, when you have very little money and when you have very little time, because even when you plan everything to a T, something will go wrong. That's just the nature of the beast. Something will go wrong. And so you try to be as ready as possible and prepare as many things as you possibly can during your pre-production so that during production, when the fires light up, you're ready for them and you know how to pivot very, very quickly. So did, did you naturally then transition from production work to directing or was that something that you always had in mind of having to go at? That part didn't happen as easily because, 
you kind of uh, get pigeonholed into doing one thing in the business. If you're known as a producer, people will always call on you as a producer. And for me, at the time I started out um, as a production production coordinator and then as a line producer, which means that I was really dealing with logistics. I was dealing with the hiring of the crew, the the um, uh, locations, making sure we had the locations and we had contracts and, and all of that stuff for the locations, making sure we had caterers for meals, whether it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, all three, um, you know, making sure we had the proper equipment that we needed for the camera department, for the sound department, et cetera. All of those things that have to do with logistics, you know, that making sure we had uh, the calendar, um, you know, that, that the AD had a calendar, all the scenes were, were on the shooting calendar, et cetera. Uh, making sure there were external, external drives <laughs> to save all that footage. Just th- there's a lot that goes into being a line producer, but that's what I was doing. And so at some point when you become known for that, then people reach out to you for that hey, you're a line producer, please come and line produce my project. So while I was doing that, I was also still working on the creative side. I started writing little bits, like little short short films. I started taking classes. The Writers Guild of America, for instance, has classes that they offer for screenwriters. There are a number of screenwriting classes and workshops that that, um, I was taking online, that I was taking in person. I took a couple of classes actually at UCLA Extension. Um, just because I wanted to really jump into that that creative side. And so I was preparing myself for that. And then one day I wrote a little short film and I decided I'm going to shoot it and I'm going to direct it. And because I didn't go to film school, that's going to be the learning for me is to write it, direct it, make every single mistake that you can, and then you learn from it. And then you make another one and another one and another one and another one. (laughs) That was the learning (laughs) process for me. So I made my first short film and it was a black and white film. Um, It's, uh, I think it's, it's on my website and I think it's on my Vimeo um, right now, but um, it's called The Silent Treatment. And it was basically about a love triangle. It's a short nine minute film, black and white, very much 1920s inspired. Even the speed at which I, at which we shot is 1920s um, inspired. And I shot it, sent it to a couple of film festivals and to much to my surprise, it got accepted to quite a few of them. So I ended up going in the festival on the festival circuit with that short film. I met a bunch of filmmakers. I went to... Con and went to the the uh, they have the short film corner, which is not the same as the official short film selections. But at the short film corner, I met a bunch of talented filmmakers from all over the world. Um, I met a group of South African filmmakers that I, I stayed in touch with them, and then a few months later, I ended up uh, getting a contract with them. And I was traveling to South Africa every year and doing. Uh, these conferences in South Africa every year just from that one short film and from going to a film festival for it. And so after that, I made a couple of more um, short films that I wrote and directed. And that was, to me, that's my film school. That's how I learned without uh, paying $100,000 for the education. Um, but but the tr- so the transition into writing and directing was, is a little bit more difficult. I, I, I would say that I'm still technically in transition. I do plan on finally shooting, uh, directing a feature film this year. I was supposed to do it last year and then, you know, the coronavirus happened and everything 
has been on pause ever since. So hopefully sometime this year, I'll be shooting um, my directorial debut feature film. Wow, good luck with that. Um, Thank you. That's okay. So, but I'm guessing that while you were on set for the films where you were line producer, I'm I'm guessing that you must have watched what the, the directors were doing and sort of taken some tips and notes. Sometimes, yes, but um, the nature of the work of a line producer is such that you don't really get to be on set when they're shooting. You More than likely, you're in a little production office somewhere. And then, you know, when people need things, they come to you to, you know, ask questions, to give you contracts or whatever that may be. But for the most part, the line producer is not on set. And that's that's a a, a, a distinct disadvantage that I had because I wanted to be on set and I wanted to watch all the directors were doing and the creative decisions that were making and how they were blocking, how the gaffers were lighting different things. But it was it's difficult when you're a line producer to to have an opportunity to actually be on set. Now I gradually, you know, you know, would talk to different directors and ask to be present during certain scenes so I can see how things worked. Um, And then thankfully for me, I landed a job uh, at an unscripted television company first, you know, doing the logistics thing um, and becoming kind of their head of production, but still not the not on the creative side. Uh, But um, I had the leeway to be on set if I wanted to. And so that's what I ended up doing every time there was a a project that I was interested in, I would ask to to be physically on set and to um, be literally where they are shooting, just to watch the creative part uh, come to life. And I had the opportunity that quite a, to do that quite a few times, so that helped quite a bit. Uh, so I'm guessing that the people that you talk with on your show, they are people that you've met over the years through being in the industry personally. Some of them are, uh, and actually that's one thing I'm doing now. I I finished season one, but as a countdown to season two, every week I drop a little two two to four minute video and audio explaining how I met each person from each episode. Uh, Most of them I do know you know, from, from being in the industry, like, you know, Jonathan Perkins from episode 105, I know him because we work together at the same company, same thing with Daniel Pico, but then you have Rachel Benjamin. She's someone that I met randomly in Miami. You know, you have Josh Guffey is someone that I have yet to meet face to face, but we have a mutual friend who's starred in one of his films and the mutual friend said, Hey, Josh would be great for this. I reached out to him. We've had a couple of conversations and said, okay, let's do it. Um, so so I, I've met different people in different ways. But the good thing about doing this podcast is that I'm making new friends, you know, because Josh, I would not have met had I not had this podcast. Uh, so so I'm I'm expanding my my network of filmmakers and I'm I'm making new friends, which I really, really enjoy. Yes, I think the, the wonder of film book for me personally is that the nice compact size episodes get everything across that needs to be put across. And in the case of, oh, um, I'm trying to remember which one it was now, the one where he had, um, he got Tony Todd into the film. Oh, that's, that's Josh Guffey and the movie has all gone wrong. That's right. Because the more I listened to that episode, I just kept thinking through, uh, I really want to see that film because it sounds 
really good. And that's the good thing about your show is that you listen to it and you get interested. And it's something that it might not be a film that you've thought about or known about before, but if you get that burning to want to actually watch that film, then I think that your show works. And I think that's probably what the filmmakers themselves might see in it is because they see it as a good vehicle for them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of filmmakers uh, look to podcasts to as a tool to promote their movies. And um, I, I wanted to do those type of movies, those, those types of movies in particular, because they don't have a big platform and they don't have a big PR machine behind them, you know, pig, putting bill, big billboards on Sunset Boulevard or having commercials on national television and commercials abroad and all that. I wanted to focus on, you know, Pete, the everyday filmmaker who does does not have the big resources and who's struggling, who's who's begging, borrowing and stealing to get the resources together to make their films. Um, that's who I wanted to focus on. And um, it, it's slowly becoming a great way for them to promote their projects. Yes, and I think um, particularly with that episode, thinking about what was mentioned in there, I think Josh did well to get an actor such as Tony because it seems that if you look at the work of Tony, I've got to be honest, I'm a big fan of Tony Todd's. Fantastic. Yeah. When you look at his body of work, it's interesting because you've got the big films like The Candyman, but you've also got the, he does a lot of indie films. It's like he's doing it because that's the work that he wants to do. He's not doing it because it's the thing to do. He's doing it because it attracts him. Yeah. And I think that's what makes him an interesting actor. And I think that's why I'm guessing that it works perfectly for that film and where I can see that film, to be honest. Yeah, and and that's the beauty of it too. I mean, I mean certain actors like Tony Todd, um, they, as you mentioned, they go not necessarily after the big budget, big big money making films, but they go for the indie films. And a lot of times, it's on the strength of uh, the script. You know, they read the script and they see it as a great vehicle for them, for them and for their talents, and so they'll sign on and to to do the film. I, I, if you go on Tony Todd's IMDb page, he has 230 film credits. <laughs> I know. 230. That's incredible. It is incredible. I mean, to, for 20, 2021, he already has at least five projects, you know, that with his name attached on, on IMDb. He's, he, he's a hardworking, uber talented person. And I think the great thing too, that's happening with all gone wrong is that it's kind of right now in terms of scheduling, it's kind of on the same schedule as um, the Candyman remake. Right. And Tony Todd is in that as well. And the Candyman remake was supposed to be released a couple of months ago, or or maybe I think it was maybe it was supposed to be released this coming February. And now all of a sudden they're saying, oh, it's been pushed because of the coronavirus because they wanted to be released in theaters. So it's kind of a great thing when you have a huge movie like like this, like Candyman and and, and the Candyman remake that's about to be released. And then you have Tony Todd, you the small filmmaker that no one really knows. You have your little indie film and Tony Todd is in your film as well. 
And so it's kind of a good timing to kind of ride on the coattails of that bigger film and release your little indie film so that, uh, you know, the world can see Tony Todd in in a different uh, film around the same time. I mean, the perfect um, thing for that would be if they showed a trailer for All Gone Wrong before they show Candyman, because then somebody there might say, oh, he's in that film as well, and he's in Candyman. We'll come back when that's out, and we'll come and watch that film. Yeah, that would be fantastic. That and and hopefully it's something Josh has thought of. If not, I'll certainly mention it to him. So thank you so much for the suggestion. Um, I don't know how easy it would be to get that done, but that would be you know a fantastic thing for for uh, all gone wrong. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, do you have an actual set structure for the show? Um, the only thing that I have that's a set structure is a time limit. I don't want the show to be more than 30 minutes per episode. I, there's an exception for one episode, which is at the beginning. It was, it's Daniel Pico's episode. And that one, I think it's about 34, 35 minutes long, but I don't want it to be more than 30 minutes long. And the reasoning for me is that I I work full time in unscripted television. Uh, That's my bread and and butter. Um, And, you know, we we have structures in terms of is this a half hour show or is this a one hour show? Because that's how you sell it to television uh, stations and to networks and distributors. It's it's is it a, a half hour or a one hour show? And for me, I've always wanted for Filmbug to eventually become kind of a hybrid animated and live act, live action uh, television series. And so in my mind, I structured it to be a half hour show. And typically, you know, in the unscripted world that I work in, you know, for to have a television show and you call it a half hour, it's really just 24 minutes of actual content because you have to leave time for commercial breaks and and for for, um, you know, whoever purchases it to buy to 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 to, uh, provide ad breaks to different advertisers who want to buy that time. So I structured it as a half hour television series, uh, which is why I have the time limit on it. But in terms of a a structure of the storytelling, I don't really have one because it's all based on, I'm told when I interview the filmmakers, some interviews last 35 minutes, 30 minutes, and then other interviews last last two hours and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Like I, my interview with Daniel Pico was two and a half hours. That's why the final result is about 35 minutes or so. So it's a little bit longer than everyone else's. The interview with Josh Guffey, All Gone Wrong, that was an hour and a half interview that I condensed and and, and uh, added my narration. And it's now a half hour episode of, of the podcast. So it, it really varies on what story is that I'm told. Um, and much like when I work on... on in unscripted television, you know, when you're doing a podcast like this, you don't know what the filmmakers are going to tell you. So it's not until after they're done that you actually look at what was said, and then you kind of craft the story from what they say. So I have a lot of unused content that I can repurpose. You know, I can you know, put throw it on YouTube or release other parts of the interviews. Um, I haven't done that. I may do that. You know. Some, at some point later on. 
Um, but I, I, I basically take what is essential to the story and that's what I use for the podcast. And then everything else I kind of leave behind. That's great. So you've got all that content there that's extra that you could do something with at a later date if you wanted to. Like, yeah. um, I know some shows that use use Patreon, for instance, they will have extended shows or something on their Patreon page or on yeah. their own website. They'll have like, they'll say, oh, these are the bits that you didn't get in the show or that. So you've, you've got that possibility there as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely have that possibility of, you know, having a Patreon page and directing people to it if they want to listen to the entire episode. Um, and I, I, I may do that uh, at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the, the subject of film, have you got a favorite film memory from being, when you were younger watching films? Uh, yes, <laughs> I have a couple. The first one is going up in a country like Haiti, which is considered Francophone, French-speaking, although really our main uh, spoken language is um, Haitian Creole. Uh, we get a lot of French movies. And then the few American movies and American TV shows that we get are usually dubbed in French. So when I was growing up, I, I watched a lot of American movies that had dubbed French. And I remember watching Trading Spaces, uh, um, uh, Trading Places with uh, Eddie Murphy. And um, when I was watching it in Haiti, he was speaking French. It was a very odd French voice that Eddie Murphy had in my, in my childhood. And I was looking at it like, Oh my God, Eddie Murphy sounds a little bit weird. And then it, it's Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. And then, and Jamie Lee Curtis is also in it. And then I remember after I immigrated to the United States, I happened to watch trading places again. And this time Eddie sounded very different because it was his real voice. It was, he was, he's an American and he sounded very, very different. And that blew my mind. Nobody talks I, like Eddie. <laughs> I know, but, but I was a child at the time and I was like, wait a minute, that that's not what he sounded like in French. This is amazing. How did they do that? This was years ago. Um, and then when I got into filmmaking, I started learning about dubbing and how the dubbing process has gone. I was really amazed. And then I went back and did some research on the person who was Eddie Murphy's French voice. And it oh. turned out he was actually a very well-known, brilliant African filmmaker. He's considered one of the fathers of African cinema. His name is Med Hondo, H-O-N-D-O. And he happened to have made a film called, called West Indies that also involved Haiti and that starred a really big Haitian uh, singer. And I was, it, 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 the whole thing was so amazing to me how I came to know this brilliant filmmaker just because to me, he was the French voice of Eddie Murphy. Um, that's just one of those really awesome memories that I have. I, I, I was hoping to meet him someday, but unfortunately he passed away in 2019, I believe. Um, 
you know, so I missed that boat, unfortunately, but that's one, one memory that I have of, of watching um, films in Haiti. The second one is um, Raul Peck. Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar actually a couple of years ago for his uh, documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. Now, Raul is also Haitian um, and he made his first film, which is The Man by the Shore, decades ago. And I was a teenager. <laughs> I was in school and I remember one day they said, oh, there's going to be a screening of Raul Peck's Man by the Shore. And surprise, the filmmakers here, there'll be a Q&A after. I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. So we sat down in the auditorium, we watched The Man by the Shore. And then afterwards he came uh, on, 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 he went to the, microphone and people were asking questions back and forth. And I remember someone asking him a question about the red door and he just gave a fantastic answer. So it was, it was one of those memories that I had like, okay, you know, he made this movie and this is a person who is also Haitian and who looks like me. Um, you know, maybe I can do the same thing as well someday. So that's, that's kind of one of the things, uh, one of the people that put that little nugget in my head that maybe this is something that I can do someday as well. So you've been a fan of films since really young age, um, uh, I'm guessing. Yes, I have been. Um, I, and, 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 you know, during the time that I was growing up in Haiti, it was not, I couldn't see how that would be possible. You just can't see it at the time. Uh, now it's a different time in Haiti. There's uh, a film school in Haiti that uh, uh, Ben Stiller is actually one of the founders of. Um, so there, there's a new generation of filmmakers uh, really doing some fantastic things in Haiti. But when I was growing up, I didn't have that. And so I had that dream, but I didn't see how it would be possible. Um, so yeah, it, it started very young for me. So when you're getting ready to put together each of your shows, what research do you do into the subject that you're discussing, the, the guest? And how do you arrange for those guests as well to uh, to talk with them? I So uh, arranging for the guest varies for each person. Some people I know them and I just call them like, you know, Perkins, for instance, or Rachel Benjamin. I knew them and I could reach out to them and say, hey, would you come on my podcast? And they said yes. Other people uh, I know through the festival circuit. Like, for instance, there are a few people that I reached out to for season two. It's because I went to a film festival and I saw their first film. And so I reach out and say, hey, I have a podcast um, here's what the podcast is about. Here's a link to a sample episode. I'd love to have you on board. Let me know if there's something that would be in, of interest to you. And then I send that out. And most people answer and say, yes, absolutely. You know, I would love to be on the show. And then I send a doodle, uh, a doodle poll just to um, lock down a time and a day that would work. And then we schedule it and, and we talk. So that's that's generally how that happens. It, it, it hasn't been very difficult to, to find people to be on the podcast. Um, and I'm hoping that trend continues. <laughs> um, I've also had people who were on the podcast and then they told their friends and then the friend reached out and also wanted to be on the podcast. 
Uh, there are two two filmmakers that I actually found via Facebook because uh, we have a mutual friend. She posted on her Facebook page and said, hey, these two women filmmakers went through hell to make their movies. Please support them. So I commented and I said, hey, I'd love to have them on my podcast. And then they both responded under the Facebook uh, post and said, yeah, sure, sign us up. We'll do it. And that's uh, uh, the episode with uh, Rebecca. Okay. Her film is called What Breaks the Ice. And then the one about acute failure. Yes. Those two episodes, I found the filmmakers via Facebook. I've never met them in person. Um, And in terms of preparation, the only preparation I do is, okay, I find out who the filmmaker is, what movie it is that uh, I would be interested in in, and that I would want them to discuss and then I reach out. That is the extent of the research that I do. Um, and then once I get them on the podcast, then it's it's really just about making people feel comfortable and making it as if it's just a normal conversation where you're getting to know them and you're asking about, you know, the hard work that went into making their project. Um, and then people start talking and they they get very, very comfortable and they're at ease. And, you know, I've I've had instances where people got so comfortable that they're starting naming names, right? You know, uh, uh, someone will be talking about a, a bad thing that happened on set. And they said, yes, and it was this cinematographer's fault and his name is blah, blah, blah. You know, they get really heated and really into it. Um, but then what I do when I edit, I remove that because I realize that sometimes it's in the heat of the moment and that, that you, you, you actually drop somebody's name saying it's their fault that this went wrong. Um, and at the end of the day, filmmaking is a collaborative process and we have to continue working in the industry. So you don't want to make enemies because you say this person is responsible for it. Uh, plus, removing that doesn't take away from the story itself, nor does it uh, nor keep nor does keeping it add anything to the story itself. So when it doesn't take away from it or it doesn't add anything to it, I don't have any problems with, uh, with removing that bit. Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's generally how I go about, um, you know, reaching out and, and interviewing people. Okay. I'm going through the list now of episodes that I've listened to. Cause there's one where, Oh, when you were talking to Sarah Snow, I'm guessing yes. that, um, because she's done a lot of work and some really, I mean, like the Slenderman and yes. things like that. So was that just by talking to her or did you do research before talking with her so that you knew her background? So um, Sarah is someone that I've worked with in the past. So I did know that she was a, a producer on the Slenderman movie. Um, she is a fantastic producer a brilliant woman, great to work with, but she was very clear. She said, yes, I I would love to do the show, but I will not name the show. Uh, I would not name the the movie or the director. And the reason she didn't want to do that, it's because it was a really close friend of hers. And the friendship nearly ended because of the shenanigans that happened on that set. And she said, I'll tell you everything that happened, but I don't want to say her name or, and I don't want to say the name of the film. And I said, yeah, not a problem. 
So that's why her episodes, it's called A Short Film with uh, Sarah Snow, as opposed to the, to the actual name of the film. It's because she didn't she didn't want to mention either one of it. The, the, the short film is still not done. It's still sitting on the shelf somewhere, and it's been a couple of years. That's understandable about not wanting to damage the relationship there. So right. Do, do you have a favorite genre of film that you go to? Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, uh, things that are a mix of drama and comedy, like dramedies are things that I really (laughs) enjoy. Um, you know, the movies that don't take themselves so seriously, really, those are things that I I really enjoy. I'm not a big fan of the straight comedy stuff, or uh, I, I do like sometimes the straight horrors as well. Um, uh, I am not a fan of horror. (laughs) <laughs> I will say that. Uh, the irony in this is that the film that I mentioned earlier that's going to be my directorial debut is a horror film. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, yeah, I know, but I'm not a fan of horror. I ended up, I, I mean, I've been watching a lot of it, obviously, in preparation for shooting my own. So I've become intimately familiar with a lot of these horror films, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan because I get scared easily, even though I know how all this works and I know how they shot it. I'm like, oh my God, this is terrifying. So yeah, I'm not a fan. <laughs> so what attracted you to that picture itself then for that to be your feature debut? So it's one that I've written myself and um, it's a very personal film because it deals with the mother-daughter relationship. Um And it kind of, uh, there are a few elements that I've taken from my own relationship with my own mother and added to the film. And it's, ultimately the film is about healing and about letting go of certain things. Um, And and that those two things are very important to me. Mother-daughter relationships fascinate me. They really do. Because when they're bad, they're bad. I've seen some really, you know, interesting dynamics between mothers and daughters. Yes. Um, and, and Haitian mothers and daughters in particular, uh, there's a pattern there. And obviously, I don't, I'm not generalizing. I'm speaking on the ones that I have observed, some of the friends that I have, and the dynamics of their relationships with their mothers is quite interesting. Because a lot of those mothers... Um, had to grow up under very difficult conditions. And so they always felt that they had to have a heavy hand. They always had to be very strict disciplinarians. And and that's how they raised their daughters while they let the sons run amok. And so that dynamic to me is, is fascinating. It's very interesting. And I wanted to explore that in my first feature. So I, I wrote it and um, I look forward to directing it and to see how it all ends up. So that's the, um, thinking about it as, a, as I'm a musician, that's the, that's the hook of the piece really, is that that mother-daughter relationship is the hook to the, to the whole story. And then the, the horror is just, the genre that it's there within, but you've got the drama in the centre of it that is the main basis of the film and the story. Absolutely. And I actually hesitated to even call it a horror because it's not like it has blood and gore or anything like that. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, like Hereditary, for instance. That movie mm-hmm. is terrifying, but, and, and there is some blood and gore. Have you seen Hereditary? 
I haven't actually seen Hereditary, no. Yeah, it's 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 a very scary film for me. <laughs> probably and, be for me then. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's a story about a mother and um, her children and her husband. Uh, there's a lot more to it, but it's a family basically. And you know, there is some blood and gore in it, but it's not like your traditional horror where you know there there's guts spilling out and heads. You know, it, it's not like that at all. Um, so yeah, so I hesitated to even call it a horror film because it's more of a a hard drama um, with some elements of horror in it, like horror thriller type of thing. Yeah, if if we're talking horror, then my own personal taste would probably go towards something like um, the, the others, for instance. I think that is a really good film. I don't think I've seen you know, the With others. Nicole Kidman. Okay. I don't think I've seen that one, unfortunately. I'll, I'll add it to my list because that's all I'm doing is watching horror films these days. Because okay. <laughs> that, that's more psychological. There's no actual blood, no gore, none of that. But it's it's almost like a ghost story-ish. But with yeah. a twist. You know what? I think someone mentioned that with respect to another horror film I watched recently. Um, what was it called? It's a, it's another horror film that's basically two children in a house with their mother and their mother just came home from having some kind of cosmetic surgery. It's called Goodnight Mommy. Yes. So I mentioned on on Facebook probably a month ago, I said, hey, I just watched a movie called Goodnight Mommy. It's a, an interesting film because nothing happens for the first hour and a half. For the first hour, nothing really happens. And then the last half hour is just nuts. And I had a friend who commented and said, uh, yeah, I've seen that film. It's a straight ripoff of uh, The Others. And I said, oh, I have not seen The Others. <laughs> <laughs> so you're the second person to mention it in the past couple of months. So I, I will certainly um, take a look at it. But yeah, I was told Goodnight Mummy was very similar. Okay, so do you have an actual favorite film? Uh, I, I wouldn't say I have one favorite film. I have so many movies that I really like. Uh, you know, I love Timbuktu, uh, which which uh, came out, I want to say, three or four years ago. Um, I love, uh, uh, what is that uh, movie? Um, hmm. I can't remember the name. Describe the film. It's a it's a prison film. Uh, okay. And it's it was made in the nineties. Um, anyway. Redemption. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There we go. <laughs> That's a. I love that film. It's one of my favorite movies. And I like the Green Mile as well. Uh, I wasn't too too big of a fan of the the Green Mile. No. Um, no, not so much. But but really, Shawshank Redemption is a big one for me. Uh, one of my favorites, um, Timbuktu, as I mentioned, um, the Ma- the Matrix, only the first one. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of that. 
Um, Fingers crossed for number four. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> is there going to be a number four? Oh, my goodness. There is. They finished it already. Oh, no. It, it comes out within weeks of John Wick, whatever number that one is as well, apparently. <laughs> So you've got Keanu Reeves followed by Keanu Reeves in the cinema. <laughs> oh, that sounds like exciting times. I cannot wait. Um, I, I'm I'm also a big fan of Wong Kar Wai as, as a filmmaker. Um, obviously in The Mood for Love or in uh, Chunking Express, those types of movies I really, really love. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I have one film where I said, oh, this is perfect. This is my favorite. I, I, I just love so many different types of movies and so many different um, filmmakers and the different techniques that they use. Um, I mean, in, in terms of contemporaries, I mean, Ava DuVernay is a big one for me. Um, uh, Barry Jenkins is fantastic. Um, you know, it's just, just it, it depends on on the filmmaker or the genre, but I, I don't have anything in particular, uh, any one film in particular that I would say, okay, this is my favorite movie of all time. Okay. I think it's an interesting time for film at the moment, not just because of the pandemic, but also because of the, the way that the world is with the streaming uh, platforms, as well as the... Um, cinema the picture picture houses or, or whatever it's because you'll find that sometimes the streaming networks will take projects that bigger studios wouldn't so much so it's does that make it a more interesting um, industry now to your mind or or does it create a problem with the fact that the theaters are the way that they are and the big corporations are looking for specific films I think I see where you're going. And I, and I would say to me, this seems like an, an exciting time for independent filmmakers yeah. because, you know, the, the, the people on my podcast, for instance, the films that they made, you know, some with as little as $25,000, uh, those are not films that they would get the opportunity to put in theaters anyway. You know, they don't have the budget. They don't have the money because to put the movie and, and release it, having a wide release, even a limited release in theaters costs money and they don't have those resources. So their movies would not be in theaters anyway. However, now it seems some of the studios are looking for smaller films. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people don't like platforms like Netflix, but Netflix is, 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 is a platform that is actually accessible to independent filmmakers who are making their movies on next to nothing. You know, I have a friend who has a film on Netflix right now. It's called Jezebel. She shot it for $50,000. And then, you know, wow. when, it, when, when she finally did the post-production and did, you know, the festival circuit and blah, blah, blah. In total, she spent almost $100,000 in the film. And then it's on Netflix. Now, I don't know how much Netflix for she at least recouped what she spent. But this has opened so many other doors for her because, you know, immediately after it premiered on Netflix, she started getting calls to direct episodes of big television shows 
Okay. And she ended up, she's, she's shot her fear. Her, her movie was released on Netflix a year ago. And since then she's shot two or three episodes on very big television shows that are on very big networks. And, you know, she's in variety and now she's, she's attached to direct a, a, a movie with um, uh, starring Gabrielle Union. She's doing a bunch of different things that she could not have done before this. And a film like hers, it would never be, in a, in a theater. I mean, she may have tried to put it in theaters by herself on a limited release, which means you have to pay those theaters and, and then you have to do the marketing of it yourself and, and, and do a very targeted release, literally trying to figure out, okay, and which city has the greatest demographic for this film? Okay, let's release it in Miami. Let's release it and Chicago, Illinois, just targeted release, very limited targeted release that could potentially work. But again, that also cost money. So for me, it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time for people like me, you know, to try to pull as many resources as I can to make a little film and then to have it, um, you know, I can upload it myself on Amazon if I want to, as long as it meets their specs. And then I advertise it and promote it myself and get the eyeballs on it. Um, it's a, it's an exciting time for independent filmmakers. It's a hard time for the big studios and the big movies because when you make a movie for $100 million, you, it has to be in theaters. So you Absolutely. can re recoup your money. It has to. Um, whereas when you make it for, for little to nothing, it doesn't have to be. You have other avenues to have your work seen by a lot of people and you know to hopefully recoup what you spent. So I'm excited. It's interesting you should say that because... I listened to a, another podcast that I listen to a lot, Real Blend, which has somebody from the entertainment company Cinema Blend and then two people that work for Fox TV as their host. And they were saying in that that um, they were saying, oh, when do you think big blockbuster films will return to cinemas? And when I was listening to that show, I was thinking, the problem is with these blockbuster films, like you said, because they're on such a large budget, They've got mm -hmm. to think about what money they're going to recoup. So to my mind, those sort of films are almost um, at the mercy of international cinemas. So they've got to look at the money that they get from international, whereas they're, they're looking at it as the host from America. They're thinking, when will they be able to be shown in America? But I think the film studios that have paid that sort of money out for these films, they'll be thinking, well, will that American audience be large enough to recoup the money that they need or would they have to wait for the international cinema uh, chains to reopen? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those big blockbusters, they depend um, primarily on the, on the American market, but also on China, <laughs> you know, yes. the yeah. big Marvel movies, it's, it's like, okay, how's it going to open in China and how's it going to open in the United States? And there's a lot of money that being spent on those films a lot of my, and I get it they have a fan base you know the people who are into the comic books um you know that that's their fan base but then they also get other people who are just interested in the films like myself and who will spend the money to go to go to a movie theater to watch it um you know not expecting some th something deep or earth shattering or anything like that so I I get it but but you know that model is is difficult to sustain especially and a pandemic when people can't go to the theaters and now what, you know? 
and and people are understanding the the value of the small of the small indie drama or the small little romantic comedy that's made on next to nothing. They're seeing the value of that. So it's it's an exciting time. You've just led into a thought that I had while you as soon as I finished what I said, which my thought was, in a way, these cinema chains in America and in these countries where they've got the cinemas back open again, they would do well to actually look to the the smaller, lesser budgeted indie films as a way to put something on in their cinemas to get an audience at least to come in to watch a film. And that could be an interesting uh, way to get those independent films watched by audiences. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it would be fantastic. I think the challenge for them is how do you convince people to come watch this film? It doesn't have any big star in it. There's no big name. It's not, a, a, you know, it's not a, an existing IP uh, that that a lot of people are already familiar with. Uh, so the challenge for them is how do you get people inside a movie theater to watch this film with a bunch of unknowns from a director that no one's heard of? Um, and, and I think that's what they have to grapple with is finding creative ways to to bring people to to theaters to watch a, a movie like that that that's challenging it's not impossible but it's certainly no. challenging no what they could do is they could probably get hold of two of those films and i'm just thinking at the moment while they can't while the big studios aren't putting out their you know marvel films and all these uh, franchise films they could put these smaller budgeted films on in place of, you know, to cover for while there's nothing, no big blockbusters coming out. And they could probably maybe do a double showing or something and say, here's these two films back to back for the same price as you'd pay to go and watch a film normally, that that sort of thing. And it, it would it would get that interest into the cinema because I know a lot of the time, a lot of times I've been to the cinema and I've seen a less smaller budgeted film. And it's like you go in there with no idea of what you're going to watch or you're not, you're not expecting the big thing. You're just going in there wanting to watch a film. And sometimes you'll come out from an independent film, like, uh, what can I think of, American Animals or whatever, where you'll come out and you'll think, wow, that, that was incredible. But it wasn't incredible on the in the same way as a big, you know, CGI blockbuster. Oh, there's all this going on. It's a human story and you come out with a different feeling to how you go in to see a big, big film. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. Um, I mean, right now it may not, it may, it may still not be possible, obviously because of the pandemic, you can't get anybody inside movie theaters. Um, But certainly when things start reopening up, I think that's a, that's a great idea. I think it's a great business model. Um, They, you know, as I said, they just have to figure out, uh, how to really bring people to the theaters. I, I mean, how do you attract the average person who's sitting at home looking for something to watch? Uh, you know, obviously if you, if you have a great trailer and they've seen the trailer, they're like, oh, this looks like a great heartwarming story that I can relate to. I'd love to go see it in a the theater. Um, you know, but but they have to find different ways to reach out to people. And, 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 and part of that has to do too with um, filmmakers building a fan base uh, online, you know, on social media. Uh, you know, if you have a, a, a nice little group of people who follow you on Instagram or on TikTok or Twitter, 
and you interact with the people who follow you, that's, you know, really a, a fan base. And those are the people that the filmmaker out to, to say, hey, my little film is going to be at this particular theater on this date. Please go watch it. And, and that may be another way to um, advertise that sort of small indie film. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a fantastic idea. And going back to a point earlier on where you were talking about your friend that made the film that's gone to Netflix and now she's been directing uh, episodes of big television shows over there. That makes me think of filmmakers like uh, even big filmmakers. So they all start from somewhere. So you've got people like, you know, Steven Spielberg. He was a small filmmaker to start with and then he transitioned from there to doing TV and then he made the TV movie, uh, what was supposed to be a TV movie of Jewel, which became a theatre film. And that was a gradual show. That shows that people that start off making smaller budget films, they can get up to that level. And you've also got other filmmakers like M. Night Shyamalan. I think he started on smaller, short films and he worked his way up as well. So there's that, you know, you can reach those heights if you keep at it. That's what I'm saying there. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, 99% of the filmmakers who are famous and well-known now started out making small indie films with little to nothing, you know, getting friends, getting help from from family, from friends, and for from uh, colleagues or or film school friends, etc. Ninety nine percent of them, that's how they started out. Rarely do you start out with a studio handing you a wad of cash and saying, "Go make your big budget film." It it just doesn't really happen yeah. like that. Um, but also, it all depends on your career goals. Like, what is it do you really want to do, and where do you want to end up? Do you want to be the famous person directing, you know, writing or producing the big Marvel movies, or do you really have an indie heart and you want to continue making, you know, the small, uh, quiet um, indie drama, and and you have a, a nice little audience that follows you, and and that just loves whatever movie that you put out. Um, it, it depends on your career objectives, but it is absolutely possible, um, you know, to to work towards one or the other. Uh, but again, everyone starts out making the small indie film for next to nothing. Uh, there are barriers, obviously, you know, it's not always possible to even even to make a small indie film. It's not po- it's not accessible to everyone, you know, Um not everyone can reach out to family to ask to borrow money or put stuff on credit cards. Cause you, when you, when you listen to even the big guys, they tell you, yeah, my first film, I put everything on a credit card, blah, blah, blah. like Rebecca's episode, what breaks the ice, you know, and Rebecca is a seasoned filmmaker. And, and she said very clearly, listen, there's something put on a credit card. I maxed out my credit card. Yes. Um, there's some people who are like, well, yeah, my parents had mortgaged their homes and took a second mortgage so that I can do this and make my dreams come true, blah, blah, blah. So some people can do that. But then there's some people who, who don't even have that. So, you know, it's, it's not always easy, but, um, you know, anything's possible, I guess. Do you think that um, the pandemic has changed the way that, or will change the way that films are made? Um... I, I think so. Yeah. Um, I I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, 
people are going to find ways to make smaller movies on smaller budgets um, because of the pandemic. Uh, I think a lot of, uh, you know, screenwriters who are in quarantine right now or on lockdown, they're writing screenplays where there's a pandemic <laughs> and everyone yes. is wearing masks. So I think once this is over, there's going to be a huge boom, just a, a large number of pandemic related films. Um, and I think we'll get sick of it very, very quickly. So do I. <laughs> I think because it, it's even strange for me now I'm watching movies and you know when you see people hugging people at restaurants you're like oh my god and you know and you have to remind yourself hey this this was during normal times you know um so I, I think we'll see a lot of that um you know I, 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 things are evolving every day and they seem to be changing every single day and Nobody really knows what it's going to look like when this is all over. Um, and I'm saying when this is all, all over, just hoping that it will all end at some point. Yes. Um, there doesn't seem to be any end in sight, but I'm hoping it ends at some point. So I, I think it remains to be seen how, how this is really going to impact filmmaking. I know that right now there are people still, you know, trying to shoot their projects, but it's a whole thing because the pandemic has created a new uh, department in filmmaking. Now there's the COVID department when you're on a movie set or on a television set okay. and you have a, co a COVID coordinator. That's a new title now in Hollywood. It's somebody who has taken a few, I guess, COVID uh, uh, safety classes online. Um, and so they have a certificate and now you have a COVID coordinator who is the head of the COVID department. And that department also has a COVID tester. That's someone who comes in and does testing. Typically about, you know, like SAG, the Screen Actors Guild requires testing every three days. So your tester comes in every three days and tests everyone and, you know, provides the test results and all that stuff. And then you have someone like a COVID production assistant who is on set cleaning up after every take or cleaning, you know, the table where the meals are served and making sure that, uh, you know, there's proper aeration of where if, if you're shooting indoors, um, you know, making sure that the meals that are served are either boxed individually as opposed to before where it was like buffet style. There's none of that anymore on sets. So COVID has already impacted the way people are making movies right now for, for the people who continue making movies right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the coordinator has to take temperatures every day at the beginning of every morning, take temperatures and, and, and put a note, you know, this is what this person's temperature is. And so it's already different how we're, we're, we're doing things now. Um, you know, it remains to be seen how, how things will be in three months and six months or, or next year, or even five years down the line. Well, those things must make it even more difficult than for people on a smaller budget because now they've got to budget for those aspects as well. Exactly. Exactly. And I remember I was listening to a panel on COVID safety guidelines uh, for film and TV. And there was a lady who works for Winnipeg Studios and she said, yeah, we're still shooting during the pandemic. And she said um, to budget between 10 and 40% of what your budget already is, take 10 to 40% of that and add it to it for your COVID department. I'm like, are you wow. crazy? <laughs> That's It's insane. And it does make it now even more difficult for indie filmmakers, as you said, because now you need money for a whole new department. 
um, to make your film. So uh, yeah, I, you know, and that's actually one of the reasons why my 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 feature that I want to shoot that's because I have to add this extra money to have COVID department because it's not just you know the COVID coordinator or the PA or the tester. You also need um, protective gear. You need masks for everyone. You need gloves for for uh, everyone. Everyone that's not on screen. Um, you know what I mean? It's 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 a whole thing. It's and and you have to you need insurance. You know you have to make sure nobody gets sick on your set because if one if someone gets sick then you have to shut down and everyone has to quarantine because you don't know who else got infected. You know, it's, it's an interesting uh, new world <laughs> that we're in right now in, in the movie uh, world. So, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see how, how things turn out. Wow. That, that's crazy because then you, you're thinking that um, some of these, like we've mentioned, these bigger budget films, like the Marvel films or the, the DC films for Warner brothers, where they're spending you know, over a hundred million or something on a film. That means that for every hundred million that they spend, they have to add a, an extra forty million for every one hundred million. So the Batman film that's being made and all these Marvel films that are being made under these, they've had to add that to what they're paying out. So yeah. that's more money that they've got to make back when it goes out to the theaters. Yeah, that is that is ridiculous amount of money. It's crazy. And I don't know if you heard the clip of uh, Tom Cruise. Yes, I have. He yep. was having a complete meltdown. And a lot of people were criticizing it. And this, and I'm like, you have no idea no. how, you know, what he had to do to even get a green light yep. for a production during yep. this pandemic. The amount of money that had to go into it just for the COVID department, because that's a film that actually was shut down before because someone yes. tested positive. They had to shut down. And when you shut down, you're losing a lot of money. Now, for a movie that costs, you know, millions of dollars, the insurance covers the period of time that the movie is shut down. But still, you don't want to have another shutdown. You don't want to expose people to the coronavirus unnecessarily. And people in the in the industry, particularly in Los Angeles, people are suffering because there's no work. There is no work. Quite a few people actually I, that I know personally have left the, the, the city of Los Angeles just to go find work elsewhere. So there is no work. So, you know, if there is, is a production that is actually up and running and there are parameters in place for you to do your job safely, please follow those parameters and those guidelines, you know, because there's so much at stake. There's so much at, at stake. Absolutely. What, what a lot of people in the general public might not realize is the fact that he is actually a producer. So Correct. He's, he's looking at that aspect of it as well, not just as, the, as an actor that's the star of the film, but he's also looking at the financial aspect as well, because that's a part of his job as the producer, is to look at those Absolutely. all these different areas of the film and how, the, how it's put Absolutely. together. Absolutely. And that's that's one thing I had to explain to a couple of people who were mad at me saying, yeah, and I would never let an actor yelling at me like that. And I'm like, OK, no, but he's an executive producer on this project as Absolutely. well, meaning either he has money into it or he brought the people with the money onto this project. Um, he he may have put up some personal guarantees for, you know, whatever. Uh, so this is, is it's important. And then, you know, from a, a, the human aspect of it, you don't want anybody getting sick. 
Use it because yeah. be, honest, people are dying from this, you know, not in large percentages, but people are dying. So you don't want anybody to get sick, to, to have to go through this, to possibly die. You don't want anybody exposed. So I got it. I, I, I probably would not have addressed it in that way. I probably Absolutely. would have called, you know, talked to the line producer or talked to the AD or whoever it is and, and have them call a team safety meeting and address it. That's how I would have done it. But, you know, in the heat of the moment, you don't know what was happening there. And, you know, he just lost it. I'm like, ah, you know, I understand it. I I wouldn't do it like that, but I understand it. And I also understand that from his point of view as well, I've, I've, I've seen in interviews where it's, it's not all about Tom Cruise, the star, but when he's been, he's discussed his other aspects to his career as well more, is explained that the bigger films that he makes, like the, like the Mission Impossibles and all those, he uses um, the popularity of those films and the money that he makes from those films and the profit he makes, he, he makes, he produces smaller films that he's not in, but, that is what helps him to get those smaller films made. So he's probably looking at yeah. all what's coming up in the future that's not the Mission Impossible, but the film that's starring, I don't know, um, you know, some unknown person or whatever. But he wants to get that off the ground with what he's doing with that. So that's in his head as well. The producer side of him is always there. And that's probably what's causing that more than him being the actor. Yeah. And, and like someone like Brad Pitt does the same thing. He has plan B where he puts money into, you know, the smaller films and uh, you know, the, the independent filmmakers who otherwise would not have had the resources to make those films. He, you know, it's the same thing. Um, so I, I, I don't disagree with, with what he said. I disagree with the way he said it, but I don't disagree. With, yeah. I just don't disagree with what he said at all. So when you put your show together, then how do you choose the 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 music, the clips, the and those great sounds that you use in your show, and then how do you edit the whole show together? Um, so I, I I conduct my interviews, and then once I'm done conducting the interview, I take the 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 audio, and I send it out to get a written transcript. Sometimes I do that through otter.ai and uh, I think they have 40 minutes free every week or every two weeks or whatever it is that you can get the transcript. Um, So I get the transcripts. Uh, Sometimes I do otter. Sometimes I do rev.com. I do the automated uh, uh, transcript. And once I get it, then I read the whole thing and I, I find a story from what I'm reading. And then as I'm reading, I'm taking bits and pieces and copying and pasting onto a new document and creating a story in that new document. And then after that, I go in to the new document and I add my narration portion. And then I sit down with my microphone and I record my narrated portions. And then (laughs) I go over the whole thing on paper and then I note where I want certain type of, of of music or certain type of um, sound effect. I don't put everywhere that I want music, but where it's important and where it matters, I put a note saying, I want this, I want this, I want this. Sometimes I even go, um, I have a, a subscription with Epidemic Sound. So I go there for my music. So I go through what they have. They have it categorized by genres or by mood or by era. So I go in there 
knowing exactly what I'm looking for, I go under that that type of music and then I start listening to see, you know, which one would work best. And then I put a note saying, yes, I want this type of music here. I want, you know, gunshots here. I want uh, the sound of a bell ringing here or water falling or rain, whatever it is, I, I want it here. Um, and then I put the thing together, my, like the in an, an initial round of the edit, I put that together myself. And then I send it to uh, my friend, his name is Law Jones. And he's in London at the moment. He's been in London for about a year and a half. I send it to him. You know, we have a little Dropbox that we share. I send it to him and I, with all my notes and everything that I want, and then the initial edit, and he does a fine cut and he sends it to me. And that's it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of like doing a TV show and it sounds like a lot of work, but because that's what I do on a daily basis for work, it's, it just, it kind of comes natural to me because that's, that's what I do on a daily basis. It's especially when, I, when you're, when you're talking about being in the unscripted world where um, there is no script, there's an outline of what is it, what it's supposed to be, but what you actually capture on set can deviate a little bit from the outline. And then you have to sit down, like the story producers, for instance, they have to sit down and go through all of that and make sense of it and make a story from it. So that it's, it's the same thing that I do on a daily basis. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a lot of fun for me to do. So technically you're going through what's there and then you're building a storyboard. Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's precisely what it is. Just just to make sure that you create something that's informative, but also entertaining for people to sit down and listen, you know, for 30 minutes. Now to get some advice from yourself, first of all, what advice would you give to people wanting to start out as a filmmaker? Um, you know, I, I would say you need a lot of grit to be a filmmaker, it's not for the faint of heart. I think a lot of people watch movies and think, oh, this is easy, you know, people who are not in the industry, uh, but it is not. <laughs> it's uh, very difficult. So I would say be patient, continue to create where you are with what you have, with what's accessible to you. Don't wait for you know, a big studio to discover you or for someone with a big check to just hand you a big check to make your movie. No, do what you can where you are and put it out there and continue doing that and continue putting your art out there and, you know, building a little fan base and building an audience for your projects. Um, and, 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 and just continue doing that one project after another. And even your first feature film, if you have to call on friends, you know, to, to borrow some equipment, to shoot at a friend's house or to shoot at a friend's job at night, whatever it is that, that you can do, do that. But don't remain idle and don't wait for the system to find you. Because that's uh, that very likely will not happen. <laughs> you have to put yourself out there. I mean, I'll, I'll mention again Jezebel, which is on on 
on uh, Netflix. You know, when she shot that, I remember her calling me and asking me if, if she can shoot at my office where I was working. She was asking to borrow the space. And she said, you know, we can shoot during the weekend when nobody's there, blah, blah, blah. It ended up not working out because the building where I work has very strict requirements and they did not want to allow the filming. But that's that's how she was able to put her film together is reaching out to friends and say, hey, do you have an office where I can shoot? Reaching out to other friends and say, can I shoot in your apartment? You know, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I borrow your equipment? That's how you do it. That's how you put it together brick by brick. Um, and then, you know, whatever happens after that happens, but certainly don't remain idle and don't wait for permission from anyone to do what you want to do. What other podcast do you listen to? Um, I listen to, uh, as I said, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, uh, uh, NPR podcasts, uh, Glenn Washington's podcast is called snap judgment. That is one of my favorite podcasts. And it's actually similar in many ways to what I do with film bug and that it is storytelling. And actually his tagline is storytelling with a beat. Um, so that's, uh, one podcast that I really, really, um, enjoy listening to. Um, and then, you know, I, I listen to uh, um, Script Notes. That's another one that I listen to. And that one is because it's, it's advice for screenwriters in particular. Um, and it's been, I want to say it's been on for a few years, uh, but I just got into it um, probably a year ago or so. And I listen to it religiously every single week um, because they have great advice to screenwriters, but also just to filmmakers in general. Sometimes they talk about what's happening in the industry with the studios, you know, the lawsuit between uh, the WGA and the studios. They talk a lot about that. So Script Notes is another one that uh, I, I'm a very big fan of. Um, so I would say those two I listen to regularly and then I do have others that you know once in a while I, I listen to an episode here or there okay along similar lines to what you've just said uh team Deakins is good if anybody's interested in cinematography and Roger Deakins goes into the in and outs there of um of cinematography and it's it's a fascinating listen that is. what's what's the name of the the podcast team Deakins team Deakins okay yep Fantastic. And that's the cinematographer, Roger Deakins. He's actually talking, I think he's talking with his son or something, he's, or somebody talks, asking questions, and he and he talks about how he's got shots in films that he's been the cinematographer for, and it's, it's a fascinating programme. I am adding it to my queue right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 this is great. I love it. It's <laughs> great. And now for more advice. So what would advice would you give to people wanting to start their own podcast? Ah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> um, I, I will say um, for that, uh, learn the tech aspect of it. Because um, for me, it was not as easy as I initially thought. Uh, learn what different uh, what what those different platforms offer, like you know, uh, Anchor versus Lisbon, and you know this one is free, but why is it free? Is it because they 
are trying to own my podcast and own my content versus this other platform? What is, what is it that they they offer? Certainly do the research on the tech aspect of it. Um, and then when you're doing your podcast, I one thing I noticed is consistency. You have to be very consistent with the content that you put out. Um, and you have to be consistent with how you advertise your podcast. Is it on IG? Is it on Facebook? Is it on Twitter? Is it all three? But you make sure that you are consistent with it. If you release every Thursday morning, then every Thursday morning you have a post on social media saying, hey, the new episode is out. Um, I would also say take advantage of uh, uh, apps like Wave or or um, headliner where you can record a one minute, uh, you can take a one minute clip from your podcast, put it in a little video format. It put, it turns out uh, the, the uh, you know, um, the captioning for that one minute bit, you can put um, uh, little graphics on it and then you end it with where your podcast is available. I found that to be a very uh, great tool for me to use. Every time I have a new episode, I take, a piece of it and throw that on headliner or wave and, and post it everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. That for me has worked very well. Um, but, and then, you know, being consistent with the quality of the work that you put out there, um, it's not always going to be perfect. So don't expect it to be perfect. I have some episodes where I'm like, okay, the sound's not that great, but it is what it is because it's not like I'm recording in a studio uh, I'm recording from home. It's noisy. There's a dog next door that's very loud. You know, I mean, things happen. Um, but certainly be consistent with the quality of the of the, the content that you're putting out. Because remember that there's nothing visual for people to see. All, all you have is your audio. Um, and, and, you know, that way you can attract and retain um, your listeners. I'm still learning as well. <laughs> so my advice is based on my experience thus far. So I'm, I'm still learning and maybe I'll change my mind on all of this. Who knows? Okay. Where can people find out more about yourself and Filmbug? Uh, my website is martinejean.com, which is M-A-R-T-I-N-E-J-E-A-N.com. Uh, you know, the work that I do is on there. My little bio is on there. And there's also a link to the Filmbug podcast on there. And the podcast itself is at filmbugpodcast.com. I put all of the episodes on there as well. And uh, the podcast is available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, uh, you name it, uh, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, et cetera. Uh, I'm on every podcast platform that you can imagine. But you can also listen on my website if you'd like as well. Thank you very much, Martine. And thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us. I think we've done very well there. What do you think, uh, Martine? Have we got everything there? I think so too. I think we we've covered a lot. Yes, a lot. <laughs>
that yes. was much more than initially but i don't mind because it was it flowed nicely there were a lot of really good points in there about the show and about the industry in general that i think will be interesting and will make for a really good show fantastic i look forward to hearing it when you release it okay thank you very much martin i'll uh, i'll let you get on now thank you for thank that thank you that was, so much thank you that was that was fantastic i love talking to you Thank you so much, you too, and have a good night. And you too. Stay safe. Take care. Thanks. Bye. I don't know. I spend all that money on a headset and the microphone won't work. Oh, no. (laughs) I know the feeling. Yes. You mean? So, um, how are things? I'm guessing that you're in LA around that area, are you? Yes, yes, California. Los Angeles area, yes. Yep. <laughs> so, um, what What's the situation like? It's quite there? late you, for you, huh? It is, yes. Yes, it is. It's uh, quarter past ten nearly, yeah, at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's quarter past, past your bedtime. Quarter past two there. Oh, I'm, I'm a night shift worker. I'm used to it. Okay. <laughs> yes, it's a quarter past two o'clock here in in Los Angeles. Yes. So, what's the so? Just slight, you know. Just try and find out how things things are, you know. So, what's it like over there then with the um, lo- lockdown procedures? Are you on complete lockdown still in LA? Uh, no, they they've uh, re- removed some of the restrictions. And uh, they have now allowed restaurants to open with limited capacity. And uh, I I don't even think they're allowing sit sit downs at restaurants. You have to pick up, but you can sit down if the restaurant has an outdoor portion. Um, So that's allowed. Shopping is allowed in in the big stores. Again, you have the store owners have to limit the number of people inside. Mask is mandatory, that kind of stuff. That's good. That's really good. That and because you're, yeah. they've made it outside for for restaurants. That's that's easier to do the the distancing as well because you just have more space between the tables and you're outside as well. So yes. that makes it a lot easier as well. Yes, and and that's what they're doing. A lot of the restaurants that do have outdoor seating, uh, you can only seat sit. You can only sit at every other table. So they leave one table uh, empty between everyone. Um, so, I mean, hopefully it'll work out. Uh, I know our numbers have been pretty high. I actually have a friend who's a nurse, uh, who was telling me how they have had to put people (laughs) in gift shops or in the hallway, you know, patients, because they're at capacity at the hospital where she works in downtown Los Angeles. Um, so yeah, how are things your way? We are still under, the whole country is under a full lockdown until... They've said the eighth of March at the earlier, at the soonest. Jesus. So, yes, because we're getting over Goodness. ten thousand cases per day. Uh, catch, you know, with wow. people catching it. So yes. What city are you in? I'm um, about twenty miles away from Nottingham. Got it. Okay. In, in wow. the middle of the country. That's why I don't sound yeah, like a yeah. Londoner or a posh person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would know the difference, to be honest with you. 
unfortunately. <laughs> That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> like me trying to work out where people are from in America and they have two presenters on their show, the Xander and Stone show. And one of them is in China and the other one is in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it was one o'clock in the afternoon when I did the recording, or it might've been, was it one or was it two? No, it was one o'clock because where the person in China was, was I think ten, a year, nine o'clock at night. And it was seven o'clock in the morning at, um, at Arizona, whenever we had the call, because I made the joke that we were all having mi- different meal times, having <laughs> meals at the same time. So one was breakfast, one was lunch, <laughs> one, was, one was having a supper in the same call, which is yeah, really strange. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> you and have said, to oh. make the world as small as possible. <laughs> and I started the phone call by saying, "How are things in the? How are things in the future in China?" And then. Then when the person from Arizona joined, I said, "How is the past? All we need now, I said, all we need now is somebody in Australia, and we'll be in tomorrow." Right, right. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> but but good for you for doing this. It's a lot of work. I know you listen to a lot of podcasts. That's a, that's amazing. Um, so kudos to you for the work that I, you're doing. I try to. I try to. I'm trying to create. Well, I didn't initially start out with this idea originally, but it's I've suddenly it's changed slightly where I'm trying to create almost a community of people of podcasting community in a sense, if that if that makes yeah, that makes, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. it's creating a rapport. I mean, there's there are two people specifically that I'm now friends with that do podcast both in the States that I never knew before I did the show. Mm. But there's a real camaraderie there now where we catch up with each other on a frequent basis to make sure that we're all okay. And it's, it's, it's a nice thing to do. I think. Anyway. Yeah, I agree. It absolutely is. I agree. That's fantastic. Good for Kudos to you. Thank you very much. And kudos for you to you for your show. That's uh, I love the show, but then we're going to get into that in the actual recording, aren't we? So, okay. <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's get to that. So, um, 